You don't have to raise your hand or, or anything to this answering this question, but if we're all honest, uh, we'd have to admit that there's been a time where we've pretended to, to know something, kind of faked that we understand what something is, when in reality we, we have no idea what that thing actually is about. Uh, maybe we laughed at a joke that we didn't really understand or pretended to go along with some movie reference even though we you know, hadn't seen the movie. Um, all kinds of stuff. You, you know, you, you've maybe repeated something that you heard someone else say even though you really don't know what it means. Uh, we have a six-year-old in our house, and that happens frequently, like a hundred times a day. Um, but it happens. We we get into those scenarios where we're not really sure what's uh, what something is about or, or what it means. Uh, like when I go to taco places uh, with our high school pastor, he always orders in Spanish, and he's fancy like that, and. The guy that's taking our order, it seems like him and the, the waiter always having this like great conversation in Spanish, and they're laughing, and then they inevitably both look at me, and I'm like, nope, I don't speak Spanish. I don't even try. I don't offer an hola or a, you know, gracias or mas chips, none of that, and I don't do that because I learned my lesson several years ago with another Spanish-speaking friend. We went to uh, another taco place, there's a theme, uh, and I began that order with an hola. And the waitress assumed then that I spoke Spanish, and for the next 12 seconds, we were on an uncomfortable journey, where I then at the end had to say, oh yeah, I don't speak Spanish at all. That was a, a huge mistake, and I learned from that that it's not beneficial to fake knowledge. It's not helpful to pretend that you know something if you really don't. It can actually get you into trouble, and that's true for everything, not just ordering tacos. Not really knowing what something is or how something works can cause some real frustration, and the consequences can quickly build. Several years ago, I brought a ladder into our house to get up into the attic. And because, you know, I don't pay attention to details like, is the ladder dirty? Uh, The ladder left four jet black, oily, greasy spots on our nice, clean, pretty, light beige carpet. And I thought, oh, no, (laughs) this is not good. And... Believing that I knew what to do, I started to like rub it with a towel and I probably was like grabbing for like baby wipes or something like I can clean this up. No problem. And the whole time I was only making that much, much worse. And Leah, the one who actually understood what to do, insisted that I stop trying to clean these spots and just get away from the carpet. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I did, but it turns out my lack of real knowledge was only making that situation far, far worse. Sometimes I worry that this is how people treat God. They walk around thinking that they know him, 
Like they can speak Spanish when they can't. Sure, you may know a couple of words, enough to order a taco or two, but you don't know Spanish just like you really don't know God. Or people believe that they actually do understand God, they confidently believe that they know him and they know what he's about, like they can get grease out of a carpet, when in reality they they really don't have a clue. They really don't know God the way that they should. And because of that, all they're doing is just making things worse and worse. This morning, I'm wondering how well you know God. Do you understand God like you should? Are you just pretending? Are you using the few words you know to, to fake a relationship with God? Or are you overconfident in your knowledge? Is your exposure to church Or to God's word, does it make you feel like you know God when in reality you don't know him very well at all? Your disinterest in God or your pretend relationship or perhaps your uninformed confidence, all of those are connected to how little you understand of God. Let me say it a different way. The better you understand God... The better that you know him, then the more interest you'll have, the more joy you'll have, the more desire you'll have for him. Listen, the better you understand God, the way he wants you to know him, the greater your desire to submit your life to him will be. So what can give us a clearer view of God? What can help? How can you have a better understanding of the God who made you? Well, 1 Kings chapter 8 is an amazing chapter to accomplish just such a thing. This morning will be our third trip to this chapter where we will once again look at this incredible and also complex picture of our Creator. It's a chapter that will surprise you. First read, it doesn't seem to be that in depth. It doesn't seem to be that rich or rewarding, but I would put 1 Kings chapter 8 in leagues with other chapters like Psalm 23, where we get maybe one of the best pictures of our sufficient shepherd, or Isaiah 40 that unpacks the marvels of God's character. 1 Kings 8, it's another chapter packed with rich truth about God and understanding it. And embracing it, these truths, they're just going to greatly enhance our desire for and our joy in the Lord. As a reminder, 1 Kings 8, it's, it's a celebration. It's a huge party moment here. The temple is it's finished, and it's time to celebrate what God has done. God's people now have rest like they've never had before, and they have access to God's presence and the promises of God, they're all just like coming true right in front of their eyes. And so they are over the moon excited with what God has been doing. And Solomon wants to celebrate, not himself for building this temple, but rather the work of God. So he praises the character of God. He dedicates the temple in a magnificent prayer that teaches us some amazing truths about 
the God of the universe. If you want to know God better, 1 Kings 8 can help. If you want to understand God better than you do, 1 Kings 8 can help. If you're tired of pretending that you know God and you actually want to know him, 1 Kings 8 is for you. Our big idea still from several weeks ago, our joy in God is connected to how well we know him. Our joy in the Lord is always connected to how well we know God. We're going to start in verse 31, halfway through this chapter, and we're going to try to finish it this morning. So again, grab your Bibles, 1 Kings 8, and we're going to start in verse 31. God's word says this, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven. And forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Solomon keeps praying. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people, Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given your people for an inheritance. If there's a famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there's blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, spreading his hands towards this house. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you've given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner who's not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they'll hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I've built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you've chosen and the house which I've built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there's no man who does not sin, and you're angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they've been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who've taken them captive, saying, we've sinned and committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly. 
God, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, you've taken them captive and they pray to you towards their land, which you've given to their fathers, the city which you've chosen and the house which I've built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions, which they've transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who've taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance, which you've brought forth from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you've separated them from all the peoples of the earth, as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers from Egypt, O Lord God. Let me remind you, as we've been looking at this chapter, that God is God for a reason. He is above us and far above us at that. His ways are not like our ways. Isaiah 55, 9 says, His thoughts are much higher and bigger and different from ours. God is complicated. And we've been learning about these complicated aspects of God here in 1 Kings 8. And this chapter, it's helping us see those paradox truths about God. These truths that when Side by side, they seem impossible. They seem like they can't actually go together. But as we've been studying them and and seeing what God's Word has to say, we're, we're realizing that they're not actually in opposition to each other at all. They are truths, and they do go together. We've learned over the last few weeks that God, number one, is a God that's hidden, but also revealed. We don't get to... See God in his full glory. It would be too much for us. He's hidden always, but it doesn't mean that we don't get to know God. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And number two, God has been perfect in the past, which gives us confidence for the future. Maybe another way to say that, God's going to continue to be perfect. And even though that makes us nervous when we think about every other thing in existence, but not when it comes to God. His perfect record doesn't undo us. It only gives us confidence in the future instead of anxiety and worry. God's perfection is not a problem at all. We've also seen that God is uncontainable and yet God is accessible from Verses 27 to 30, we sang about that this morning. God is this great, big God, and yet he's also personal, and, and he, we have access to him, and we definitely need to understand that, and all of those truths. And yet there is so much more here. The many verses we just read this morning right in front of us, they teach us another truth that God will judge sin, and yet God is also merciful. And you see that on the screen, number four, just another paradox here about God. God punishes sin, and yet he also forgives sinners. In other words, there will be judgment for sin, but there's also mercy for sinners who seek it. 
It's hard to miss Solomon's point, isn't it? God's people sin a lot. They're constantly in these situations. They sin against their neighbor, verse 31 says, and they sin against God, verse 35 says. And when they do, it's crystal clear in Solomon's mind that God has but one response, and that's to punish and judge sin. There's judgment for iniquity, transgression against God. And these scenarios of judgment, they seem so odd to us, so specific, but Solomon actually learned this from the Torah. Leviticus 26 details this. Deuteronomy 28 talks about this. God had already been over all of these circumstances with his people. These are the covenant curses. Basically, God's saying, if you do this, here's what will happen. Verses 33 to 34, Solomon sort of rehearses all that he knows here. He knows that God's people will be defeated by God's enemies when they sin, because God promised that in Deuteronomy 28, 25. And you keep going down this chapter, verses 35 and 36, there's no rain because of their sin. Well, God talked about that in Deuteronomy 28, verses 23 and 24. They needed rain to survive. They needed to depend on God for for rain, and and their sin against them would cost them severely. Verses 37 to 40, sin can bring famine or pestilence or plague or sickness. God also warned about that in Deuteronomy 28, 21. Verses 46 to 50, God's people will be taken into captivity by their enemy. That's Deuteronomy 28, verses 36 and 37. So these punishments, these judgments, these curses... They are the consequences for sin. God's not messing around. He's not going to excuse it. It seems like God's people are always in these sin situations. We might also add they're always in need of forgiveness. And that too is highlighted here in these verses. Did you hear Solomon pray for it? We read one last week from verse 30, but in our text this morning, verse 34 and verse 36 and verse 39 and verse 50, over and over, Solomon prays that God would hear and that God would forgive those who ask. So what is Solomon doing here? Well, he's praying the legitimacy of the judgment God, when your people sin against you and when you bring those judgments on them, because I know you will, because you've promised that, I know you'll judge sinners and you'll punish sin, but God, if and when they pray to you for forgiveness, God, I also know that you'll hear and I also know that you'll forgive. Solomon prays that over and over, not because he's guessing, not because he's wishing, because just as he knows God will punish sin, he also knows that God is merciful to forgive, but only to those who ask. Verses 49 to 50 make it so clear. It's, it's sort of the center of Solomon's prayer. It, it's meant to be highlighted for a reason. He says, hear their prayer, hear their supplication, God in heaven, your, your dwelling place. Maintain their cause, he says. Forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions, which they've transgressed against you. So no matter what happens, 
There are two realities for all of us. Unavoidable realities, especially this first one. God will punish and he will judge sin. That is, that is a definite. But there's also full restoration. There's total forgiveness from God to those who ask. And again, that's something that Solomon learned as well. If you go back to Leviticus, it's there. If you go back to Deuteronomy, it's there. You'd read about it in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 10. God had already laid all this out. I'm not playing with sin, but I know because you're sinful, I will forgive you if you ask. This truth has influenced the prayers of God's people since the days of Moses. And it continues to influence our prayers up until this very day. God is not like some grandpa God who doesn't care what his grandkids do. He isn't some God who's nonchalant about sin. He's holy and his holiness demands that sin be punished. It has to be dealt with. It has to be judged and it has been. God punished his son to pay for our sin. Jesus went to the cross to die for you. That's the gospel. Jesus went to take your place and bear your punishment. It was the only way that that sin could be punished so that he could offer forgiveness. But that forgiveness is only available to those who repent, to those who plead for grace to those who cry out to God and ask for that forgiveness. Sin was paid for, and that was motivated by God's love for you, God's rich mercy motivated by his divine love, your sin paid for by the Son of God that by grace you would have forgiveness. And that's what Ephesians 2 is all about, that you could have this forgiveness but it's only through faith, only for those who actually believe in Jesus as their savior from sin, only to those who confess, only to those who cry out and repent of their sin. God will punish sin, but God will also forgive sinners who ask junior hires. There is no more important truth than this. There is no more important paradox of God to grasp than this one. Both necessary to truly understand who God is, to draw him, to draw you to him. So important. I want to look at one more. We'll kind of close out the chapter this morning. This one also so helpful. First Kings chapter 8, verse 54 it says this, when Solomon had finished praying the entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven, and he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who's given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. 
that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I've made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as at this day. Now the king of Israel, the king and all Israel with him, offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of Yahweh, because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. For the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. So Solomon observed the feast at that time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king. Then they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Verse 54 to 61 show us just one last paradox. God is moving us towards eternity, but God is also a God who cares about today. God is moving us towards eternity, but he also cares about today. This post-prayer blessing on all the people, it continues with this theme of God's redemption plan and the Bible's message is one that is gravitating towards the grand finale. It's all throughout Scripture, God's plan to rule and to reign over all the earth once again. And that plan includes people outside of just Israel who will be brought into the kingdom of God. Our last section actually talked about the foreigner coming to God and seeking forgiveness because redemption is for all the nations of the earth. Final day is coming when people from all over the planet will bow and they'll worship. All of them will see Jesus as Lord and and King. And that was a promise that God made to David that there would be a king in his line who would always sit on the throne forever and ever. And Solomon loves to celebrate this promise. He loves it. He can't wait. He has such hope and anticipation for that final day. And now with this temple complete, and there's like a vibe in the air that God's people are closer than ever to God's presence being on earth. With the temple, you see that in verse 60, that that God's presence is ramping up that grand finale idea with all the people of the earth knowing the Lord, knowing Yahweh. They will know that he is the real God, the only God. 
Solomon anticipated what God would do. He longed for God's you know, plan for the end, and so should we. Colossians 3 encourages believers to, to keep their minds on things above where Christ is. Certainly the book of Revelation encourages Christians to be excited for the end of God's plan and to be excited for eternity, but God doesn't only care about that. Solomon also knew that God cared about the next 24 hours of their life just as much as those last days on earth. Solomon knows enough about God to ask that his prayer remain on God's radar, if you will, day and night. That God would never lose sight of that. Verse 59 that, that God would maintain the cause of his people as each day requires. That word there, requires, it's the same word used in Exodus 16, 4, where God's people were to go out and gather manna. They were to do that each day, enough for the day. God knows how to supply enough for each day. Day And Solomon knows that he, along with all of God's people, they, they have to be cared for. They have to be supported by and loved and kept by God every single day, 24 hours at a time. God doesn't forget the details. Yes, God's kingdom will be ushered in one day fully, And finally, and that is God's big purpose and plan, but that doesn't mean he's forsaken the importance of the day in front of you. He's also a God God that can maintain those moments for you as well. God isn't consumed by the end to forget about you today. He is Lord of every day. He knows and cares about what each day requires for you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What, what will we drink? What will we wear? Jesus says the Gentiles, the godless, they're consumed by that. They eagerly seek those things. That's all that they think about, all that they worry about. And Jesus says, but your heavenly father knows what you need. He knows that you need all these things. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Be focused on God's kingdom and his righteousness and all that stuff will be added to you. So God is moving us towards his finale, yet he cares about you and me and all our needs. He knows and he provides, and that too is pretty mind-blowing. There are some marvelous truths in this chapter. (laughs) Believe it or not, we didn't even highlight all of them. Those are the main five that I think are so helpful and reality there's 10 there because each point has two but the ones that we did look at we need to understand all of those we need to grasp those we need to embrace those truths and if you will i promise your desire for god will grow your joy in him will increase if i had to guess i would say that one out of those 10 truths that we've learned One of those is a reason why most people reject God. 
One of those is a reason why most people who do reject his gospel. Because they've never seen those truths. They've never learned those truths about who God is. One of them is keeping them out of the kingdom because they just don't understand. If they could only see God like this, and maybe you're here this morning and you're the same. If you, only you could understand God the way Solomon understood him. And now that you have, I'm just wondering what's keeping you from changing your mind. How can you reject God when you see him like this, when you understand who he is like this? How can you want to continue to fake a a relationship when you see him and understand him as he is? That's you. I hope that you consider these truths and that you ask God for understanding today, that you would ask God for salvation today, that your joy in him may be so full. And I hope that you caught that. One last little note, how our chapter ends, the people disbanded, but not sad. They were joyful, Solomon writes. They were glad of heart. Why? Because they understood the goodness of the Lord. They understood who God was and who God is. And because of that, their hearts overflowed with joy. Father, thank you for another morning here to look at your word and to study this chapter. We praise you that we can know you like this. God, that you give us a clear picture of who you are. Lord, help all of us to understand it, especially these junior hires, God. Help our joy and our hearts to be full in you. Father, help this knowledge of your goodness to stick with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.